it's Aaron. This week on the Long Form Podcast, we're talking to winners of the George Polk Award for Journalism. Uh, it's something we've done for the last couple years on the show. This episode, I talked to Lori Hinnant from the AP. So uh, Lori is based in Paris, but she worked with a team, including Mstislav Chernoff and others that she talks about in the interview, uh, who were reporting from within Ukraine, specifically within the city of Mariupol, uh, as it fell Eventually, they became the last journalists uh, who were there. So this is Laurie Hinnant from the AP. Welcome, Laurie Hinnant, to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you. I wonder, you are um, a winner of this year's Polk Awards for work you did with the AP and some other journalists uh, in Ukraine. I wonder if you could just sort of briefly tell us like who was in this team other than you. Our team was Mstislav Chernov, Vasilisa Stepanenko, and Yevgeny Maloletka, and me. And the three of them started out in eastern Ukraine which is, as it happens, where all of them are from. And they knew even before the war started that eastern Ukraine was going to be where all of the action was going to take place. As a editor and reporter at the AP, do you have teams like this sort of in the field in different parts of the world at all times? It depends. We have teams like this when there are specific events. I mean, they're not going to be out waiting for stuff to happen. But Yevgeny and Mstislav had worked together for years, beginning, actually possibly even predating Russia's initial invasion in 2014. Vasilisa is from Kharkiv, and this was her first experience as a journalist for an international news organization. She'd worked as a local journalist in Kharkiv. Um, She's just 22 years old and has packed essentially a career's worth of experience into the last year of her life. So you're in Paris. They're in Ukraine in uh, Mariupol. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mariupol? Yeah. Well, initially I was actually in Ukraine. I was in Kiev. Okay. You were in Kiev. And then I went to Paris. I went back and then you to, went Paris. to Paris. Yes. When you're working with a team like this, that's in the field and you're slightly more removed than they are, like, what is that role like and how do you support them and sort of stay in contact with them, figure out like editing decisions with them? Well, I was reporting and editing at the same time. I mean, I wasn't editing because they were filing spot news every single day as best they could. And it was very complicated, much more complicated than anything I've ever done because communications were so difficult. And as the Russians closed in in Mariupol, our time to talk became more and more compressed and more and more random. So basically, whenever my phone rang and it was from Mstislav, I dove for it because that meant that he had found a connection. And I would ask questions about what they were seeing, what they could possibly see, what was possible to get, and just really try to get a feel of it. And sometimes, honestly, it wasn't even what they were saying. It was just hearing the explosions in the background behind them. And what was your strategy for taking those phone calls and later the material that they were able to smuggle out on drives and turning that into stories? Like when you have something that's this big and this timely, what is your sort of publishing strategy around it? Well, the publishing strategy, the first part of it was 
basically just, I wrote down every single conversation that Misty Slav and I had. I was basically writing and, and almost structuring what was happening in the city in my head and, and trying to picture it as this kind of amazing, almost classical Greek defeat where you had this city crumbling before their very eyes. And so it was the structure of the story. And when I say the story, I'm saying it writ large, the video, the photos, the words, because they all really went together for us. So the structure of the story of the fall of Mariupol and it's, it's being surrounded by the Russians. We wrote it, I wrote it and constructed it over a number of weeks on the phone. And then essentially, as soon as we knew that they were going to get out safe, which was not obvious initially, as soon as we knew that happened, we were ready to go because we had been working on the publishing strategy all along. And upon being safe, we found out, or I found out that they had smuggled out this little data card full of video from a medic named Tyra. And so at that point, we all started working together in Ukraine because they were out and I went and joined them. Um, they and we just tried to figure out what in this video, what did this video show that no one else could see? And as it happened, the very day that they escaped, the woman who shot the video was captured by the Russians. So we had this real ethical dilemma where we were trying to figure out if we should even run the video or how we should run it. Would it put her in more danger? What would be the reaction? We saw the Russians put her out on video, basically on their own propaganda video, calling her a Nazi, attributing all kinds of horrific stories to her. And what we knew is that the footage we had showed her treating Russian soldiers with kindness. So we talked to her husband, we talked to the Ukrainian government, and we talked to people who knew her, who'd worked with her, who'd known her for years. And ultimately, everyone said they didn't think that anything that we ran would hurt her any more than the danger that she was already in. But it took, just sorting through all of it, first of all, took weeks, finding all these people, making sure that, in fact, it wasn't going to be endangering her. Um, it just took us a long time. But ultimately, she told us later that it was our video that helped free her. When you look at that video and some of the photographs that uh, accompany the work, there's a tremendous attention to detail in saying people's names and their specific situations. You're not getting like, oh, this is someone who is the victim of a shelling attack. It's a person with a name. This is their wife. This is their child. How do you manage that in these chaotic situations? And what is the importance of that kind of specificity in sort of the face of counter propaganda and Russian disinformation about some of these photographs and videos? Well, the specificity is crucial because without it, it's very easy to say, oh, you just made this up. And that was why it was so important, for example, after the bombing of the maternity hospital, to find the people who had survived. And that's why even over the course of a year, even at the very end of the year, we went back and we found the husband of the woman who died along with her unborn child. Because it is not abstract. And it's really easy when you see raw footage flash by on the television to just see it as war as hell. And this is very abstract. These are people with lives that were utterly ruined and they want to tell their stories. I and mean, we're not talking to people who don't want to talk to us. And when you find out what happened the day their lives were changed, 
it really changes it. At the end of the year, we found the woman whose apartment had been hit by Russian tank fire. We had the video of, of the apartment being hit. And we didn't know anything more than that. It was a particularly chaotic time. It was the days before the team escaped Mariupol. But by December, we had actually found her. And Vasilisa and I went and tracked her down in Dnipro and sat down with her and her and her grandson and the video. And she walked us through that day and the days that followed. So you really got a sense not just of, oh, isn't it horrible when buildings get hit by tank fire? But, oh, no, this was what happened to my door because somebody went into the apartment and showed the results of the explosion. What are the stakes for your sources, these subjects, like this person you're talking to about their experience during the shelling? With people still in the town, what does it mean to be quoted in an AP story about this? For the most part, the people that we quote by name are all no longer in Mariupol. When we talk to people still in the city, I'm trying to think if anybody agreed to have their name used, but I don't think anyone did Okay, because they don't feel safe. And in fact, we talked to one person who was working with this kind of underground dissident movement and had to take some extreme precautions to make sure that she wasn't traced. But, um, you know, the stakes for them are that they, they want their story told and they want their lives back in some form or another. Whether they really understand exactly what AP is, I mean, we, we explain it, but it's they have a lot of other things on their minds. So they, they do understand that it's got a global reach because, for example, that's how this woman saw her photo, the photo of her apartment getting hit. From what I understand about the AP, and um, forgive me, I think you are the first person from the AP that I've interviewed, the AP is pretty stringently neutral in its reporting. It goes for like a pretty generally detached, fact-based approach. And these stories, you have perspectives of reporters who are grew up in this region, in the Ukraine, and then you have your perspective as a outsider. My understanding is that you are not Ukrainian. I'm not Ukrainian. (laughs) How do you balance those perspectives and how do those perspectives fit within the overall AP tone when you're putting them together? Well, ultimately the investigations, and because they all basically were investigations, um, we were trying to uncover and reveal things that that wouldn't have been seen otherwise. And um, the goal was to do just that. So when we were reporting together, what we did was take things that were facts. And that was what was so important about it was for, certainly for the team on the ground, just getting the facts out themselves was a challenge. And there was so much effort to suppress them. So even just that was essentially, I suppose, a perspective because these were facts that Russia was trying to suppress, was trying to obfuscate. Um, When it came to the bombing of the theater, the Russians came up with three or four different stories before they finally settled on one, which was that there weren't so many deaths after all. Just trying to report and speak to 30-odd people who survived to try to figure out what happened was the perspective that that story needed. In reading different reports, you see these differing death tolls and you know they're all obviously estimated from you know 2500 10,000 25,000 75,000 people may have died and in some ways these are sort of 
unknowable facts because they're based on things like uh, analyzing aerial photos of, of freshly dug graves and those kind of things. How in your reporting do you deal with those kinds of unknowable facts and those figures that are basically being suppressed actively and may never be known? You do the best you can, and you do it by reporting what you do know. And so when we tried to get a handle, for example, on how many buildings were being demolished in Mariupol and how many people might have died in those buildings and were buried in these mass graves, that took quite a long time because what we essentially did was we built, I built a, a database of every single building that I could confirm had been demolished. And then we went through and took satellite photos and did block by block how many apartments these buildings would have had in each of them to come up with a rough estimate of how many homes were destroyed. For the deaths, again, as you said, it's, it's unknowable, but you can start to get a range in. And you do that by measuring things, by looking at the mass graves and looking at the close-ups of drone footage and trying to figure out at a minimum how many bodies are buried and what you do know, how many people are missing. Um, it's just really hard. And then you spell all of that out. And then one of the really important things about the reporting was showing our work, showing where we got everything. So after the team that you were working with left the city, there were basically no journalists uh, within Mariupol. But you have continued to report on what has happened subsequent to this siege in the period uh, that's elapsed uh, since they left the city. What has that task been like? And what sort of happens when the last journalist leaves a city? And where does that leave things? I mean, there are journalists for Russian media in the city. Right. They have their own perspective on what's going on. And there's not a lot of wide shots because the city is devastated. And actually, most of our reporting took place after the team left. Hmm. And we worked on it for really the entire rest of the year because Mariupol is an example of what happens when Russia takes over a city. So what happens after the last international team leaves is essentially it just gets a lot harder. And everything needs more and more sources. For the theater story, we had to track down, I think we tracked down something like 30 witnesses and survivors, most of whom were no longer in the city, but some of whom were still there. For the story that AP did on what was happening to the children who were being taken to Russia, that story took months to report. Because how do you find people who are missing? How do you count something that is missing? It's just, it becomes just much, much more difficult. In terms of thinking about how your work is perceived by, let's just say, an American audience or a, a Western audience, I don't know what the term would be, you have these like pretty graphic, shocking images uh, and videos. I was watching an interview from, uh, I think, from Sundance when the documentary came out that like people have had like panic reactions to watching uh, some of this footage. Uh, the documentary I'm talking about is 20 Days in Mariupol. How did you consider the presentation of, of the graphicness of this violence and trauma when you were publishing videos and photographs? 
mean, AP doesn't publish gratuitously graphic material, but um, as I think Misty Slav said in the movie, it has to be hard to see. This is not easy to endure and it shouldn't be easy to watch. So you go into any reporting about war knowing that there is an element that is going to be very, very difficult. And you don't need to publish gratuitously violent images, but it's not pretty and it shouldn't be. I wonder as someone who's done this kind of work in different settings, if there's any advice you might have for young reporters who want to become involved in projects like this. For me, the starting point of any project like this is just to ask about what you don't know. What are all the things that you don't know and that everyone says is unknowable? And then go after those things and find the very best way of figuring out how to know them. I mean, that's that's really the, the starting point for every big project that I've worked on at this level. Um, and it's we did that in Iraq. We, we tried to do it in North Africa where you just, you find the things that, that there aren't any lights on and you just shine it as hard as you can. When you're jumping from Iraq to North Africa to Ukraine, you're spanning across different languages, different cultures. How do you sort of work with people who know more about the local situation, local language, local culture in you? And, and sort of what is your strategy for including people who can get you deeper in than, than you might be able to get as an outsider? I mean, I would entirely rely on people who are local. You can't do these stories as an outsider. And my colleagues' skills as journalists were what made this reporting possible. And that's true no matter where you go. I'm, I'm lucky because I do speak Russian, mm. but I don't speak Ukrainian, and, and I'm very clearly a foreigner. I guess what I would say is the, the value that I add is just a different perspective, but the value that they add is vital. And it, it would make me really uneasy to go into a place without working directly with a journalist from there. Thank you so much for this interview. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Lori Hinnon. Thanks to her whole team at the AP. Thanks to the George Polk Awards. Thanks to Fox Media. Thanks to my co-host, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Gabriella Saldivia. We'll be back with another George Polk Award winner tomorrow. <laughs>